Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. Happy New Year, everybody. We had a nice break and hope you did as well. And now we are on to 2014 with a full year of new therapies and clinical trials for multiple myeloma. So just a few things to mention before we get started. If you'd like to hear about the very latest in the series in a weekly email, we invite you to subscribe to our Mpatient Minute newsletter. Just go to the homepage of mpatient.org to sign up, and you can find our links to our Twitter and Facebook pages there as well. I'd also like to mention that we've created new Facebook groups that are subdivided by some genetics. Um, as we've been talking with researchers and finding out that myeloma is not a single disease, we thought that we may be able to help share discoveries by subtype. So, for example, if you have the 1114 translocation or a gene 17 deletion or MGUS or smoldering myeloma, there is now a group for you. And I've gotten some requests for a light chain-only group, a Waldenstrom's macroglobulemia group, and a plasma cell leukemia group. So I've added those as well. But please feel free to join the groups that apply to you and post any research or information you find to help the whole group benefit. And you can find these on the homepage of mpatient.org on the sidebar. Now, there was a flood of information that came out of ASH in December. And we are very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Jatin Shaw of MD Anderson, who had many, many papers that were presented at ASH and he is extremely active in running clinical trials. In fact, we had to postpone this interview so in order for him to have the time to prepare. So, Dr. Ash, welcome. We are so pleased to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come talk about what uh, all the advances in uh, myeloma have been over the last two years. Well, they're significant. So let me get a little introduction for you before we get started. Dr. Shaw is Assistant Professor in the Lymphoma Myeloma Department, Division of Cancer Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. He's also the Associate Program Director for the Malignant Hematology Fellowship, the Director of Myeloma Clinical and Translational Research, and is on the Multiple Myeloma Tissue Bank Steering Committee at MD Anderson. He received the Young Investigator Training Course Award from the Southwest Oncology Group in 2012, has written numerous research papers, and is the principal investigator on many myeloma studies, um, many of which we will talk about today. Um, He presented much of this research at ASH, which we will discuss. So, Dr. Shaw, maybe for those who aren't familiar with ASH and what it is, can you give us kind of a brief overview of, of what that conference is all about? Uh, Certainly. So uh, ASH is uh, an abbreviation for the American Society of Hematology. Uh, It's uh, really an international meeting that occurs every year in December um, and uh, very well attended with uh, 20 to 30,000 folks that come from around the world to talk about all the advances um, in research that's ongoing in different hematologic malignancies, including different leukemias, lymphomas, and myelomas as well. And so it's an opportunity for us to kind of uh, both share the data uh, that's uh, done uh, as well as understand and uh, communicate with other uh, oncologists and uh, collaborators about the research that's ongoing. 
Okay, and this was the first year that I actually attended ASH, and is it, but the target is specialists or hematologists or oncologists, right? That's right. So this is uh, meant, um, um, so there, there are educational sessions that are there for uh, various healthcare providers, but it's intended for uh, predominantly healthcare provider driven. And, there, and the information is presented in a few different ways. So sometimes I saw that people present their information in an oral presentation, and sometimes they present their information by creating a poster and putting it in a hallway and standing next to their poster and are available to answer questions, which I thought was easier to understand than many of the biology sessions, which were completely over my head. Yeah, there's, there's, there's multiple different types of sessions that are ongoing continuously with uh, uh, different uh, meetings talking about basic sciences and very um, um, uh, uh, basic clinical research and basic translational research and then clinical research as well. So I think it really targets a number of different researchers and investigators. And you're right, there's a different forms to present the data um, and there's really uh, the way it works, there's thousands of these kind of abstracts or short synopses of research that are presented, um, and then they cull them down, and the, what we think are the most important or relevant uh, research items are presented in an oral session where we have 15 minutes to present uh, in an oral session in, in detail the research and give opportunities uh, for folks to answer a few, ask a few questions at the end of that kind of oral uh, presentation. Um, as you can imagine, there's a limited time slot, and so really those are a, a few of the ways that a few of the research app, uh, items are presented. The majority are presented, again, as you mentioned, in these posters uh, where the data and the research information is presented in this large poster, um, and everybody can have time to review it um, and ask questions and share information and discuss ideas. Um, so there's a couple of different formats how this data is kind of disseminated. Okay. Well, it was a very valuable and helpful conference, and and it made me realize how little I actually know about myeloma. But um, and a lot of people have covered it. I know the IMF has covered it, and MMRF has covered it, and other organizations like the Cure Panel had a had a post on it. Um, for for you, from your perspective, what do you see as the most valuable information that came out of Ash? Because it was there was much to see there. There is, and there's, uh, as you as you mentioned, it becomes very difficult to kind of um, process all the uh, new information that comes out at ASH, as there's literally hundreds of different kind of uh, different abstracts or um, research um, that's presented uh, in myeloma alone, and so there's a number of different kind of uh, meetings that happen after ASH to kind of cull down what we think are the most important things. I think there's a number of things that come out at ASH this year. One is, um, and we can talk about this a bit more, but um, uh, some new data in re newly diagnosed myeloma, um, some trials in research and relapsed myeloma. There's some updates on the maintenance therapy options that we have, as well as new drug options that are being developed as well, um, including monoclonal antibodies uh, targeting CD38, and that was very exciting. Uh, you know, we didn't see any data at ASH, but we also heard about the Panobinostat uh, Panorama trial, which is also positive. And so that was exciting as well. So we look forward to getting more information about that and then other new drugs as well. Okay. Well, why don't we start in with the research that you're doing at MD Anderson. And I'm not sure how you want to approach it, but maybe we should start by talking about 
patients in categories like newly diagnosed patients and what MD Anderson and what you're working on for them? Certainly. So, I mean, I think we can, uh, when we talk about newly diagnosed myeloma, we can talk about two different things. I mean, one, we can talk about what we, um, uh, again, this shouldn't, it's not exhaustive, but we can talk about what happened at ASH as well as what's going on here. Sure. Um, and so, Yeah, sure. So Let's one of the ahead. things that we see is, to, um, so, you know, at ASH, I think there are some exciting new data in newly diagnosed myeloma, and the first one was the uh, first trial, uh, FIRST, uh, and that looked, um, uh, it was a very, very large trial, probably the largest trial that we've ever done in myeloma, um, and looked at patients getting uh, Revlimid and Dexamethasone for uh, 18 months, um, for again, newly diagnosed, versus continuous Revlimid and Dexamethasone where folks take it and they're tolerating it well and responding well, stay on Revlimid and dexamethasone continuously. Uh, and that's the first time that we've seen that type of data where we talk about, you know, continuous versus short-term um, or definite uh, amount of time and really show that continuous Revlimid and dexamethasone um, uh, had an improvement in survival, progression-free survival for patients. Um, and so I thought that was an important uh, piece of information that was presented at ASH for the first time really showing that uh, continuous Revlimid dexamethasone was uh, a benefit to patients. Uh, the other kind of important piece of information that came out, uh, I think, is a very intriguing piece by the Spanish group that looked at really sequential therapy versus concurrent, or, uh, or um, sequential therapy, uh, which uh, basically patients normally would get, uh, would get VMP or Velcade-based therapy, uh, for one cycle and then Revlimid-based therapy and uh, alternating back and forth. Um, and usually what we normally otherwise do currently is use Velcade therapy until we have some side effects or stops working and then we'll switch over to Revlimid um, or some other therapy or either vice versa. And this is the first time that we've kind of done sequential therapy where they alternate every other cycle and they compare that to kind of our standard approach and show that uh, that to be a very reasonable approach as well. So I thought that was an interesting piece of information as well. Um, does, that those are two the, does that minimize the side effects? Uh, it did. And so, I mean, I think that was the interesting thing there, that um, uh, with the, um, uh, 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 the um, alternating therapy, there was, uh, I think, rather similar uh, um, toxicity um, between the two arms. So, but that was interesting because it gives us an option now uh, where we're, because as we're trying to uh, basically make sure, as you mentioned earlier, that there's different subsets of myeloma. They all respond to different drugs. So mm -hmm. here's a way of trying to make sure we get all the good drugs into our patients without giving them all at the same time because if you give them all at the same time, it becomes too toxic um, or too tough on patients. So if we can alternate therapy, at least we're kind of getting our best therapies into patients. Um, uh, so... And did that have an impact on uh, whether you get be, become refractory to that drug or not? So we don't have that information quite yet. Um, I think um, that would be the next step, maybe. What, exactly. What happens after patients progress? All that. How do they respond to subsequent therapy? So, so I think the other interesting. So coming back to what we're doing at Anderson, um, one of the um, uh, couple of trials that we're looking at here at Anderson, as well as kind of nationwide. Uh, there's a trial looking at um, 
uh, for high-risk myeloma patients. Uh, there's a trial that we're doing with SWOG, um, as well as the intergroups at multiple sites around the country, um, including here, um, is looking at RVD or Revlimid Velcade Dex um, uh, with elotuzumab. And elotuzumab, elotuzumab is a monoclonal antibody that looks and targets CS1 on the cell surface of these myelomas. Um, so that's, a, I think, an important uh, kind of um, way of targeting high-risk myeloma. And I think as we move forward, these monoclonal antibodies will be very important in looking at high-risk myeloma, and this is the first step in that. And so that's an important trial um, in patients with high-risk myeloma. And this uh, is independent of a transplant or before a transplant or not including one? or not in, Yeah, great question. That's okay. not including a transplant. And so I think the role of a transplant is... Um, uh, controversial in high-risk myeloma. I think there's still a role for it, but this trial base, uh, does not include transplant as part of that. Uh, you can certainly collect stem cells for transplant in the future, um, but it's not intended as part of the primary therapy. And I was reading some things about ilotuzumab and compared to maybe daratumumab or, or another monoclonal antibody, <clears throat> and it looked like ilotuzumab worked better in combination with other things rather than alone. Do you want to kind of explain how that works? Yes, certainly. So, I mean, I think these, all, all these monoclones are very different. They have a different target uh, and a different way of attacking myeloma. So I don't think uh, it's necessarily uh, to compare one to another. I think mm -hmm. they're all going to be important uh, options for our patients and are going to be really paradigm changers in terms of how we think about and how we manage myeloma. And so you're right. I mean, I think elotuzumab by itself, we're not sure how active it really is. We're still trying to get a better idea in maybe patients with smoldering myeloma if elotuzumab by itself may be active or not. Uh, but I think really the important part with elotuzumab um, is in combination with Revlimid, uh, appears to be highly active and also um, very durable. And so what we see is that patients uh, get a very long benefit um, in controlling their disease with a combination of Revlimid dexamethasone and elotuzumab. Um, so I think that's the exciting part where uh, oftentimes you try and con uh, with Revlin dexamethasone will keep you know, the myeloma in remission on average of you know, 11 months or so. And here if we're getting out to you know, two and three years where a patient's disease is controlled, I think that's a major change and improvement in, uh, for patients. Oh, that's so that's one option. Before we go to the next one, can you Explain, you said it targets CS1. Can you explain what that is? Certainly. So when you look at the myeloma cells, um, on the surface of the myeloma cells, there's a little protein called CS1. And that's really um, uh, seen. So what this uh, elotuzumab does is it's also a protein, and it basically binds or targets only CS1. So it'll go to wherever CS1 is, and we know it's on these myeloma cells. So it only binds to that, and then will, um, in combination with Revit, uh, kill those myeloma cells. So it's very targeted. It doesn't go and attack every other cell in the body. It doesn't go affect any other cell other than those that affect CS1, and myeloma cells we know have a pretty high concentration of CS1. And then for high risk, how are you defining high risk patients? Just so people know if they would kind of be, a, a, you know, if it would be appropriate for them or not. Sure. So the number of different kind of um, things that we look at to identify high risk, for example, plasma cell leukemia is one, and that's when you start seeing circulating plasma cells in the blood and not just the bone marrow. 
uh, high LDH, and that's a blood parameter or blood level that we look at. Um, and there's a number of kind of chromosome uh, mutations or translocations that we look at. Those are pretty specific tests. Uh, when you do your bone marrow biopsy and we do these chromosome analyses and fish analyses looking for these mutations, uh, there's certain ones that can be identified, um, including deletion 17, for example, or translocation 414. And those are um, rather technical, but that's something that when you meet with your physician, you can discuss those, but uh, those are commonly seen on that kind of bone marrow um, biopsy that's done. Well, thanks for explaining that because I, I don't want them to be as technical as they are. I want people to know about the deletions or translocations that they have because I really think that if they don't know, they should go ask their doctor what they are because now that therapies are just starting to, we're starting to, or you, you are starting to look at things like this um, and sub, subdivide people, I think it's going to be very helpful for people to know their disease biology. Exactly, I and mean, I think the challenge is that the, you know that it's a constantly evolving field to understand what is high risk cytogenetics or what is high risk disease. So I think the key is to um, have that conversation with your physician, saying what are my chromosome mutations or what is my chromosomes um, and the carrier type or the cytogenetic show on my bone marrow biopsy. Do I have high risk disease? And have that conversation with your physician. And if so, then how do we treat this differently or not differently? Um, and so I think that's an important part of the conversation to have with your uh, with your own physician. Well, thank you for sharing that. I totally agree. So other stuff that you know we're looking at newly diagnosed myeloma here. And so you know I think that RVD or Revlimid Velcade Index is an important combination um, for newly diagnosed patients. And so we're trying to build upon that, saying that's a good option for patients. But um, how can we do better? How can we improve or um, increase the chance of patients getting into a complete remission. So you know that majority of patients respond to RVD, but what we're trying to go after now is those patients in the complete response and trying to improve the complete response rate. Um, and right now with RVD, that's you know after four cycles of therapy, that's going to be around the 20 to 30% range, and we want to try and do better than that. And so we have a trial with RVD plus a drug called panobinostat, um, and we know that panobinostat is active, um, especially when we combine it with Velcade in relapsed myeloma. And that was the exciting news that came out of ASH, that the phase three trial, where half the patients got Velcade and steroids, and half the patients got Velcade and steroids plus panobinostat, showed that panobinostat was uh, improving survival and outcomes. And so it was a positive trial showing that it's an active drug and it's an important drug. So now we're looking at panobinostat in a newly diagnosed setting, saying can we recapitulate that and try and get better responses for our patients going into a bone marrow transplant. So though, um, so that's one option that's, I think, unique to what we're doing here, trying to improve on what we think is an important standard of care with RVD. And can you explain what panobinostat does and how it works? Certainly. So panobinostat is a class of drugs uh, called HDAC inhibitors, um, and basically what these do is uh, modulate or affect uh, the myeloma cells and how they work and how they process, um, uh, how they process their biology. So it's really, uh, the, uh, and what they do is in combination with Velcade makes the Velcade more sensitive, um, sorry, makes the myeloma cells more sensitive to the Velcade. Um, or if the myeloma cells are refractory to Velcade where Velcade does no longer works, it resensitizes the myeloma cells to Velcade, where 
so it kind of reintroduces that as an opportunity to use Velkit again um, and help patients uh, if they've responded previously with it. So uh, really what it does is helps Velcade uh, work better. Well, I think that's remarkable to, because some, sometimes you hear about the drugs, well, if you've exhausted one drug, you know, then you have to move on to others. But being able to go backwards and say, let's go to a drug that was working and make it effective again is pretty critical. It is, and I think that's uh, really there's two main ways that we can move, uh, not two, not only two, but I think there's two ways that we can move myeloma field forward, and one is um, developing new drugs that work differently, um, things like the Ray 520 we'll talk about later or other drugs like the monoclonal antibodies and this panobinostat. The second way is really saying we have very good drugs as it is right now with Revlimid and Velcade, and that is effective for not all patients but many patients. And so how do we make those drugs better? Or if patients become resistant to those drugs um, and those drugs no longer work, how do we understand why they become resistant and overcome that resistance? And that's a, uh, probably the biggest area of research here at MD Anderson is in both those kind of targeted fashion saying, how do we understand mechanisms of resistance? How do we, and then overcome those? And panavinistat's an important, I think, uh, with both of those. So that's the trial that we have right now for newly diagnosed patients. And the other trial that we have right now uh, that just opened up that we're very excited about is an oral proteasome inhibitor. So right now we have Velcade, which is an injection in the stomach or uh, as well as an IV administration. There's carfilzomib, which is an IV administration. Now we're trying to convert carfilzomib into an oral formulation uh, where patients can just take uh, this pill version uh, called aprozomib. So it's, uh, uh, and it's similar to one that is a Velcade uh, oral formulation called ixazomib. Um, and so now there's these oral uh, proteasome inhibitors now that are being developed. And so uh, at ASH, we saw uh, some data with newly diagnosed uh, myeloma patients getting an all-oral combination of ixazomib, revlimid, and dexamethasone. And that was very exciting because I think it makes it much easier for patients now um, to receive therapies and take therapies um, as opposed to coming to the doctor's office very frequently. So that becomes another important option, I mean, I think. And so we're looking at one now with oprosimib, revlimid, and dexamethasone. And that trial just got launched um, in the last few weeks. So we're very excited about that uh, option for patients as well. Well, that makes a huge difference for the quality of life for patients to not have to spend so much time in the clinic. Exactly, exactly. So I, mean, I think the, uh, we still need to better understand you know, how well tolerated it is and how, well, how active it is, but you're absolutely right. I think this could be a very important step forward for quality of life for patients. Well, it impacts you physically and emotionally, too. <laughs> I was just in the clinic yes. most of this week, so <laughs> I, know, I know why. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to share for newly diagnosed patients? Uh, no, so we're, the, the other trial that's also ongoing right now is this um, uh, large international trial as well, the, um, called the IFM uh, Dana-Farber trial. Uh, where we're basically looking at everybody getting RVD, and then um, the trial basically looks at patients getting a transplant right away as part of their initial therapy or collecting their stem cells and doing a transplant later um, when they've uh, fallen out of remission. Um, so an early versus a delayed transplant approach. Um, uh, 
And so that trial is also ongoing here at MD Anderson as well as multiple sites around the country. And that's a very important trial, I think, uh, and probably a high-priority trial, correction, uh, uh, a high-priority high priority trial in the myeloma community to truly answer that question of when's the right and optimal timing for a transplant. Um, and so that trial is also ongoing as well um, in a high-priority trial. Is is that trial also looking for for whom transplant is beneficial? Because if you have these different, everybody in this, um, that's just myeloma, and you're not dividing it into yep. subgroups at all, sure. and you're saying, okay, we're going to use Revolumid, Velcade, and Dex, and then, you know, time the transplant, It's it would seem like it would be hard to get the data accumulated if everybody, you know, maybe deletion 17 has a different response to a transplant than sure. uh, gene addition 1 or I don't know, how how does that work when you look at that kind of data? Yes, I mean, I think right now uh, uh, you're right. That isn't, um, that que- that trial is really trying to answer the question of the optimal timing of a transplant. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, right now we feel that um, transplant is an important part of how we treat myeloma patients. We have decades of experience with transplant, uh, really showing that's a very effective way of treating myeloma patients. But also, uh, to me, the, the benefit of a transplant is not only in controlling their disease initially, but the durable responses. And so that means that what's my best chance of uh, having um, control of my myeloma and staying alive for not just one, two, three, four years, but for you know 10 years and beyond? And that's where we have data with long-term durable responses with transplant that we don't have with other therapies at this point in time, saying, can we get long-term survival? And that's what we're trying to do is say, you know, in my mind, when I'm talking to patients, there's lots of ways we can control disease initially. What I'm more worried about is what's my best chance, you know, five and ten years down the road of still being alive, still doing well. Um, and benefiting from additional therapies. And that's what the, I think the role of transplant plays for us right now. Um, and so it's still becoming an important part of how we approach um, myeloma. I think your question is right in terms of which patients benefit the most from transplant and which patients may not benefit and uh, do not need a transplant. And I think that's where high risk, uh, and that plays more of a conversation in high-risk myeloma, where I think it's debatable what the role of transplant is in that setting. And there's no trials right now that are ongoing that look at risk stratifying patients and then, you know, um, saying transplant or no transplant. We haven't got to that point yet. But I think that's a very important question that needs to be answered. Well, it's probably a completely different study, but we love that you're looking at this uh, about how how long to extend our disease-free experience. We exactly. want to... Yeah, <laughs> that's a great thing to look at. So thank you. Yeah. So that's, I think, right now uh, for newly diagnosed myeloma, and I think that will continue to evolve over the next you know, year, but that's a kind of a current approach um, and the clinical trials that are ongoing. Okay, great. Do you want to move into the next category? Sure. That would be so a relapse factor. Yeah, uh-huh. I guess relapse factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a, again where we talked about earlier, and I think there's um, a couple of different approaches to relapse refractory myeloma. One is again uh, new drugs um, with new targets, uh, and then 
um, overcoming resistance and saying, how do we overcome resistance? And then uh, continue to use our uh, therapies that are already available that are, can be very effective. And so I think we're excited in relapsed myeloma because right now, just in the past year, year and a half, uh, carfilzomib has been approved for relapsed uh, myeloma as well as pomalidomide as well. Uh, last year as well, it's been approved uh, in relapsed for use in relapsed refractory myeloma. And so I think uh, as we move forward now, there's a, a trial that was presented um, at ASH, and that's also ongoing at Anderson and several sites, and that's a trial of carfilzomib, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. We're combining those two drugs for the very first time, um, and that's showing very, very exciting activity uh, in patients with very kind of heavily pretreated myeloma and shown to be a very active combination. And importantly, when we looked at patients with high-risk cytogenetics or high-risk disease uh, with a very kind of similar uh, response rate or activity in those patients as well, so oftentimes patients with high-risk disease may not get the same benefit from some of these uh, therapies, but really with a combination of carfils and pomalidomide, those patients have the same benefit as everybody else. Uh, both in how well they respond and how long they respond. So I think that was very exciting. Uh, the IFM or the French group also presented data with pomalidomide and high-risk disease and also found that pomalidomide can be active as well, just with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. So I think there's some very exciting data with both of those drugs um, in relapsed myeloma. So that trial, you know, some preliminary data was presented at ASH, and that trial is ongoing at Anderson, uh, as well as a few other centers around the country. The other um, areas now as we move forward, there's a um, uh, a new class of drugs. uh, was previously called Array 520, uh, and now it's called Philanacib, F-I-L-A-N-E-S-I-B, Philanacib. And so that's a completely new class of drugs. It's uh, independent from our kind of Velcade and Carfilzomib class of drugs in our IMIDs, like our thalidomide, revlimid, pomalidomide, um, and it works in a very different way. And so there's updated data that was presented at ASH where philanacid by itself or in combination with dexamethasone uh, was active and really, you know, I think, for the first time showed activity with a different class of drugs outside of what we've talked about. So that was very exciting to see that in patients who had no longer responded to the Revlimid, the Velcade, the Carfilzomib, the Pomalidomide, and really had minimal options that this became an important option uh, for about a, a 20% a quarter of the patients. And so, um, so I thought that was exciting. And then w- we presented some data in a poster format as well at ASH, looking at the combination of Carfilzomib plus Philanacib. Um, and there's also data presented with Velcade plus Philanacib as well, um, uh, and I think both of those were very exciting combinations showing that we can safely combine those two drugs and that they're very active. And so uh, that trial is ongoing right now at uh, MD Anderson where we're combining carfilzomib plus philanacib, uh without any steroids, which makes it very attractive for patients. <laughs> yes, um, it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that surprisingly has been very, very, very well tolerated. Patients have you know, um, done very well on that. Um, uh, again, there's some side effects that we see with that combination with some low blood counts that can be managed, but for the most part, folks are doing very well with it and tolerating it very well and showing it to be an active combination. And so, in fact, that's supporting a large phase three trial that's going to be opening up, uh, I think, internationally uh, with carfilzomib, 
with or without Flanacib. And that should be opening sometime in 2013, sorry, 14 now. Um, and there's also another trial of Flanacib Plus um, that's going to be opening as well um, by itself uh, this year as well. So I think those are a very exciting kind of data that was presented at ASH with a new class of drugs that's active um, and ongoing trials now and that are planned in the future, which will hopefully uh, provide benefit to more patients. So, and can you give us an explanation of how Flanacib uh, works? How, what it does so this is yeah, Certainly. So again, this works very differently from our, our current class of drugs. And so um, uh, and it basically works by stopping uh, the dividing myeloma cells from dividing. So as these myeloma cells grow and then divide, as they begin to divide, it stops them in that process so they no longer divide. And once they stop or are frozen in that process, then they'll uh, die off on their own. So basically it just stops the division of these uh, myeloma cells from growing and dividing. Hmm. Okay, and I saw on their website that they have a video that kind of explains how that product works, so I think I might include that. Exactly. When we no, absolutely. The, There's a very nice video about that. <laughs> the transcript. Um, how they stop, yeah. Okay, great. And are there other studies you'd like then, to talk so, about for? <laughs> oh, certainly. So, I mean, I think uh, the other drug coming back, to, you know, was a panobinostat experience. You know, having that positive data from the Panorama trial, uh, well, I think was very exciting, really rejuvenated uh, interest in HDAC inhibition um, in myeloma, saying this is a very important target. And so I think um, as we move forward from there, there's actually a trial now that's ongoing here of carfilzomib plus panobinostat, again saying can panobinostat make carfilzomib work better as well. And so there was data presented at ASH uh, with that similar combination. It was a slightly different schedule uh, how the panobinostat was administered, but that was done by the Sarah Cannon group, um, and that looks very promising. A similar kind of combination trial is done with Emory, and we have one as well here uh, with a slightly different kind of schedule where panobinostat is given for the first two weeks and then off for two weeks. Um, so that trial is ongoing at MD Anderson as well. Um, and so that's, I think, an exciting thing, saying this is an important target, targeting HDAC inhibition. Um, and this is an important drug that's active, and now we're looking at it in different combinations, both in newly diagnosed, as I mentioned, as well as in now relapsed myeloma. So I think those are, uh, I think, a couple of important combination trials where data was presented at ASH and trials are ongoing here as well. Another important in the kind of the relapsed refractory setting um, with a trial at MD Anderson is called LGH447. And this is a PIM inhibitor. Um, so um, it's, a, again, a different class of drugs entirely um, where it's a different way of targeting myeloma and targeting the myeloma cells. And again, uh, that's very early on in phase one trial, so it's not as advanced as, you know, the uh, panobinostat or the philanacib um, or the uh, carfilzomib or promalidomide, but I think it's shows some very uh, kind of interesting data. Um, we're seeing some signals of activity where it may be active in myeloma as well, so that becomes, again, another important option as well for patients. Again, that's an oral uh, pill that you take every day, um, so again, it's uh, without steroids, and so it's... Uh, I think an important option, at least from a clinical trial perspective for our patients as well. And that's also being used in lymphoma, right? That's right. So I think it's looked at in multiple different kind of blood cancers, including lymphomas and leukemias. Um, and that trial is available here as well as other centers around the country. Okay. 
Um, I think the other data then that becomes interesting now, there's an AKT inhibitor. So there's multiple different kind of targets and different drugs being developed. There's an AKT inhibitor that's also being developed as well. Uh, not one here at MD Anderson, but um, I think it's an important option for patients. And other ones are include the monoclonal antibodies, which we have not touched upon yet. I think that's probably one of the more exciting areas as well in myeloma as we move forward. So you know, we well, talked about, talk about elotuzumab yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes, we talked about elotuzumab in combination with relevant dexamethasone, so that looks very exciting. I think additional data that was presented at ASH um, is daratumumab, and this targets CD38. And again, this is the same type of concept with the elotuzumab, where if you look on the surface of those myeloma cells, you'll see a protein called CD38, and these monoclonal antibodies are basically smart drugs that target only CD38, so they don't affect any other organs and just target CD38 and bind to CD38 and then kill those myeloma cells. So what you then do is minimize kind of some of the other side effects that we see with most other chemotherapies, like the nausea or the vomiting or the hair loss or the diarrhea or whatever else can happen. Um, So this really kind of avoids some of those other toxicities and really by being very targeted uh, for CD38. And so daratumumab, I think, uh, is an exciting uh, monoclonal that's being developed. There's others as well that are being developed that also target CD38. So there's a drug by Sanofi called SAR. Uh, that's also very um, um, exciting as well in targeting CD38 and also showing clinical activity as well. That, that's an important option, hopefully, in the future. And there's also another drug called Morphosis uh, 202, again, targeting CD38 as well. So I think there's three different monoclonals that now that are being developed targeting the same CD38. Um, and it can be very exciting as we move forward. So there's I have a, a question trial that's about... Ongoing. Yeah. Well, can I ask a question about CD38 first? So I know in other cancers, um, I think it was CLL, where they had one protein that was expressed, so they developed one monoclonal antibody for it, and then it worked really well for that. But with myeloma, it sounded like there were more targets. So is CD38 always presented in myeloma or not always presented? Or can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So there's many, many different proteins on these surface cells. And so, for example, in CLL and lymphoma, there's a protein called CD20 that's on there. And so rituxan is a monoclonal antibody that targets CD20. And that's been... Uh, now in use for uh, many years now and being very active both by itself as well as in combination with chemotherapy. And that really had probably the biggest change in lymphoma uh, patients that we've had in the last uh, 20 years, where that drug alone had a significant improvement in curing lymphoma patients and prolonging survival for our CLL and lymphoma patients. And so I think there's a long track record of these monoclonal antibodies of being very effective uh, and important options. And so when you come back to myeloma, CD38 uh, is expressed on all myeloma cells, uh, both at newly diagnosed and relapsed myeloma patients. And so it is kind of ubiquitously or seen commonly um, on all myeloma cells. Uh, so that I think is an important option. There are other proteins as well that are expressed on myeloma cells. And I think so monoclonal antibodies are being developed for those other targets as well. So I think there's multiple different monoclonals. These are probably the most, these two are the most kind of far that's along um, at this point in time. Well, I think all patients are excited about monoclonal antibodies because it uses your own immune system 
essentially, right, with the help of this drug to specify the target and then, like you That's were saying, right. not, not get as so many side effects as you're going through treatment. That's right. So they have so there's multiple trials that are going to be opening that? up over the... So I think that's what we're missing right now. I think what we know right now is that that's uh, active. Patients respond to it. We're getting some complete responses with it and some very nice responses with it. So we know it's a, an, a, an active uh, drug. What we don't know is uh, how durable these responses are. And so that's yet to be, I think, over the next few years, we'll understand how durable these responses are. We'll get more information about combination therapy as well as they start combining these CD38 monoclonal antibodies. And again, the three of them are all going to be important options for us. The DARE2 um, member is farthest along, but the other ones are very quickly catching up. So I think all three of them are going to be important options for our patients. The bottom line is that over the next few years, we'll get a better understanding of how durable these responses are as well as in combination, we get more and more experience with that. We already have some experience with it, uh, but I think we'll get more experience. So I think that's going to be very exciting data that comes out over the next few years. There's going to be lots of clinical trial options that are going to be open to patients here at MD Anderson and elsewhere, looking at both all three of those. And so I think patients should keep an eye out for those. Um, um, okay. Well, it sounds very exciting, and it's wonderful that, the progress is being made in the way it is. The final thing I'll, I'll quickly mention about in that, uh, again, talking about overcoming resistance, is something unique. You know, I think one of our biggest areas of focus at MD Anderson has been understanding mechanisms of resistance and overcoming resistance. And so one of the things that we found is that this pathway called Wnt-beta-catenin um, gets upregulated or overexpressed in myeloma cells. And when that happens, those myeloma cells become refractory or, or resistant to Revlimid. And so uh, we're looking at ways of targeting this Wnt pathway and suppressing it. And uh, one way of doing that is potentially thalidomide. Uh, and thalidomide can suppress Wnt. And so we actually did a trial that's already been completed and presented at ASH last year, not in 2013, but in 2012, looking at the combination of Revlimid, thalidomide, and dexamethasone. Um, so, interestingly, combining for the first time two IMIDs in this relapsed setting, uh, giving them at the same time, and what we found is that uh, is active and uh, does show activity in relapsed myeloma, and then including patients who were refractory to prior Revlimid, so where Revlimid stopped working, by introducing the combination of Revlimid plus thalidomide, uh, some patients were able to benefit from the combination. So, you know, I think uh, we can't definitively say that it was a thalidomide uh, suppressing Wnt because it was not a large randomized phase 3 trial, but that was, um, I think, very interesting data where we combine the data, combine the two IMIDs, and we're seeing some interesting activity there. I think that's an important option for patients. So building upon that, another important drug that also suppresses Wnt um, or down-regulates Wnt is called ATRA, A-T-R-A. And ATRA is a drug, an old drug. It's been around for many years now and used in different leukemias and very active in APL. Um, and so we found that actually a very potent suppressor of Wnt. And so what we've um, now have a clinical trial here at MD Anderson, um, and unique to MD Anderson is this combination of Revlimid, Dexamethasone, and ATRA. Um, 
And right now it's for patients that are resistant or refractory to Revlimid, but we'll be opening out soon if it's active uh, to patients, you know, who may or may not have had Revlimid before. But that's an important way of targeting a re mechanism of resistance, and this is just one way of we're doing that um, that works out about. Um, and so we look forward to um, uh, learning more about that combination. And its primary function is to suppress wind, and that's mainly what it does. That's right, and so the the you know what we look at atra by itself in myeloma before a long time ago, and it really wasn't that active by itself. So again, we're not looking at using atra to kill the myeloma cells directly. What we're looking at mm -hmm. is suppressing Wnt, and therefore making those myeloma cells more sensitive to the Revlimid. Again, saying we have a very good drug with Revlimid, let's see if we can't reuse it or make it work better. Um, and so that's the whole kind of uh, rationale behind the combination there. Great. Okay, that sounds like a good one. I know you have other studies, but is there anything else you would like to talk about with um, in the relapsed refractory group? Um, I think that's a pretty good flavor for what's um, ongoing right now. Um, the other kind of uh, trial that will be coming up near in the near future in the relapse setting is that same oral proteasome inhibitor that we've talked about, that aprozomib, where we're looking at it with Revlimid and dexamethasone in newly diagnosed setting. We're also having a trial with that oprozomib plus pomalidomide and dexamethasone in the relapse setting as well. So again, that's going to be another all-oral combination uh, with uh, oprosmib, pomalidomide, and steroids in relapsed myeloma. So that trial uh, is not open quite yet, but should be open in the next month or two, and so we're excited about that option as well for patients. Again, building upon the carfilzomib pomalidomide experience and trying to uh, improve the quality of life for our patients as we try and get it to an all-oral combination. So. Okay. It's, you have a lot going on. I see Lots why you're so busy. <laughs> I see why you're so busy. So I have a question because I have a friend who um, actually traveled today to your facility because he is relapsed refractory and some of his drugs are not working. I know he will get a very nice um, review and some recommendations while he's there. But with all these targets, how do you choose as a patient? between yeah, so all these a, different approaches? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, I think that um, what's helpful to understand is, um, first of all, what drugs or what, um, what drugs have we already um, tried before? How active were those drugs or not active were they? And so, um, and then what side effects did you have from those? And is that something that... Um, so the, I think those are the two important things. So, uh, you know, in terms of if you had a very long response to Velcade for a long time, um, but then started Velcade stopped working, well, then that may that's important to know as opposed to if you only got Velcade for one or two cycles and then quickly progressing, you never respond to Velcade versus I responded for a long time to Velcade, then it stopped working. Well, then that, that's an important kind of piece of information to know what side effects or um, or did you have from that therapy? Um, did you have any lots of neuropathy or other complications from that that makes it prohibitive to go back to that? So those are important, I think, when we just talk about prior therapies. 
And as we start looking at clinical trial options and what are options we move forward, those become important to understand what are you refractory to, what worked, but then you may be still be sensitive to if we try and do it again or if we do it different combinations. Uh, those become important options. And I think each trial is designed slightly differently. Um, you know, if you have relevant refractory disease, then options include, you know, Revlimid plus Atra, or we can move on to pomalidomide-based therapy or the Carfils and pomalidomide dexamethasone combination for Revlimid refractory patients. If you're a Velcade refractory, and we didn't mention these two trials, uh, and I apologize about that, but there's ways that we're targeting in terms of overcoming Velcade refractoriness, and that includes two trials. One is Velcade plus ACY, 1215, and ACY is another HDAC inhibitor as well. Uh, as we talked about panobinostat and we looked at carfilzomib plus panobinostat, there's a trial of Velcade plus ACY, um, and that's an important option because maybe we can overcome Velcade refractoriness with this combination. So that's an important option for patients. There's another target called CDK inhibitors, and there's a drug called Dynacyclib that we're looking at in combination with Velcade and, and some very interesting data there as well. So potentially if Velcade worked for us before, if we want to try Velcade-based therapies, um, then we can try Velcade plus Dynacyclib saying, you know, so this is a good drug. Let's try and do one better than Velcade or Velcade alone um, with these combination therapies. And then if we want to do carfilzomib-based therapy, saying that's going to be an important option, let's try and build upon that platform. So I think it's really helpful to understand what prior therapies have been there, what are the side effects, what are important options, and then how do we build upon what we think is an um, what we want to go from. So I think uh, it becomes, you're right, very challenging because there are multiple different trials and combinations, and I think that's important uh, to have that conversation with the physician. So I think the biggest thing that I can emphasize is when you're trying to kind of make some treatment decision plans is to be as educated as possible and ask that question uh, when you're in the room and when you're talking to your physician specifically, what are all of my treatment options? What are my clinical trial options? And it's important to ask that specific question because that starts that conversation um, and gets everybody thinking about not just standard of care options, but also clinical trial options as well. Um, and that's ask that question. Um, and if you've done some research saying, hey, I read about this combination, can we talk about that? Is that an option for me? If not, what are other options for me, and go through all of the options with me. Oh, I think the more yeah, engaged you are, the better. And the other kind of, I, mean, I think, on a side note, when we talk about um, uh, patient care and trying to get the best out of your um, visit to MD Anderson or anywhere else when you meet with a physician, I think is something that's um, to bring a caregiver with you. Um, and write down all your questions before you come, and then write down the answers as you go through it, because I think oftentimes we'll talk about a lot of information, but it becomes overwhelming when we're talking about so much information with the patient, because they have lots of questions and thoughts and concerns, um, and they forget questions, they forget answers um, that they may have already had. And so we see that commonly where I know I had a couple more questions, but I forgot what they were. Write all your questions down when you come in. Bring a caregiver with an extra set of ears that can listen and remember and recall what we talked about. And then write down some of those um, answers that we talked about or have the physician write down some of those answers 
Um, so I think that way you can really maximize your time um, and really feel comfortable leaving and thinking about it over the next few days as you mull over your options. Okay, well, that's a, it's a great suggestion. And as a patient, I felt the exact same way. I would get to my appointment, and their time is limited, and you know that, and you want to respect it. And so if you start talking about something and then you feel like your appointment time is gone, it's very easy to forget the questions that you had. So as a patient, I decided that we needed to come up with a solution for this. So I built a phone app that is now in the App Store, in the Google Play Store and the App Store called, um, there are two. One's called Chemo Brain Doc Notes, and the other is called My Doc Notes. And it allows you to, when you're thinking of your a question that you want to find out about, you type in your notes, and it can be in a variety of categories. And then when you get to your appointment, if you want to go through your notes, you can. You can record it in voice memos and text memos. And then if you want to, you can also record your visit to go back to it later. Because I know most of the time, sometimes I go to the visit and I can't remember what was said. And the terms are so foreign that it's just too confusing. So anyway, that has been built now for for patients if they would like to use it. And um, I'll be sending more information about it. But I think the suggestion is a great one because you really have to use that time very, very wisely. With your oh, this is just a way of kind of being as efficient as possible um, and then mm-hmm. maximizing that time. So. Okay, so I have one final question. Um, just this whole series has been based on the importance of participating in clinical trials. And so yes. my last question before we open it up to caller questions is how do you feel about patient participation in clinical trials? That's a great question. I mean, I think uh, I am very passionate about improving outcomes um, and lives of myeloma patients. And so there's many ways of doing that, um, from providing great patient care to answering questions for patients to being supportive of patients um, and then research is the other big way that we kind of improve the outcomes and lives of myeloma patients. And how do we improve how patients respond to therapy, how long they live? Can we push that envelope so that way we have more and more options for patients? And the best way to do that is with clinical research. And, uh, you know, for and the best kind of, kind of, analysis, kind of uh, example I can give is really for many years, from 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we really had no new drugs for myeloma. Uh, And we only had very kind of drugs that we still use now with melphalan and uh, cytoxin and dexamethasone. And people lived on average one to two years. And then with a transplant, people lived three and four and five years. But it's really in the last decade, um, last 10 to 15 years, that we've had all these new drugs. And so... That is what's improved outcome now where patients are living five, six, seven years, and we're having more and more 10 years and 15-year survivors. That's all based on these new drugs. That's all based on clinical trials. And so there's people behind us that have participated in clinical trials and led to these new drugs being approved and that are helping current patients now. And so uh, I think that's very important because that's how we got to this field. But also it's important to understand what clinical trials are. And I think uh, we could all... Uh, appreciate the value of clinical trials and leading to where we got today. But I think there's a number of things that we need to kind of educate our patients about 
what clinical trials are. And there's lots of myths, and I think the biggest barrier is understanding what the myths and about clinical trials are. And so, for example, and I'll give one example, that phase, I don't want to be a guinea pig, or I don't want to take a placebo or sugar pill, or phase one trials are only, or any clinical trials are only when I run out of all options. Mm-hmm. That's one myth. Why would I do a trial? Am I, are we running out of options, or there's nothing else for me to do? And that's really uh, an unfortunate myth. And so, for example, and then phase one clinical trials are for brand new drugs, and you know, I don't want to do phase one trials because we don't know anything about those drugs. And so, for example, the RVD plus panobinostat mm-hmm. is a phase one clinical trial. And so that really takes into account a couple of things. One, we have a clinical trial for a newly diagnosed patient, so it's not when you run out of options. And this is a phase one trial in newly diagnosed patients. And so, again, with drugs that we know are active, everybody gets RVD, which we know is active, and we're trying to build upon that, saying can we do one step better with a drug that we know it's already active in other settings, and so we fully expect it to be an active combination. So that kind of gives an example. If here's a phase one clinical trial for newly diagnosed patients and kind of breaks down some of those potential myths of clinical trials are only for the end or phase ones are you know, experimental completely and I don't want to do those, well, here's an important phase one options for newly diagnosed patients. And so I think it's important to, if you have hesitancies or concerns or questions about trials, to ask them and say, I have a concern about clinical trials because of this or I heard about this and try and have that conversation so that way you can be much more informed because oftentimes uh, your best option may be on a clinical trial and you don't want to kind of miss that opportunity because of, um, you know, uh, concerns that can be kind of well described. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, you know, same thing with a transplant. Many patients are concerned about doing a transplant, and that's perfectly reasonable because that's a big fear of the unknown or starting chemotherapy, and what we do is, educate our patients and empower them and say this is the information and that way they can make a more informed and educated decision and when we do that about transplant patients are much more comfortable going through a transplant or chemotherapy and the same kind of concept has to apply to clinical trials is there is a fear of the unknown not only a chemotherapy and the diagnosis of myeloma but now we're going to do a clinical trial and just adds another degree of uncertainty and so we have to try and do a better job educating our patients and Patients need to ask those questions and try and learn more. And if we do those, I think we can certainly uh, uh, move fo- the field forward together. Well, sure. I mean, if less than 5% of patients, more like 3% of patients are participating now, and we doubled or tripled that number, um, I think it could dramatically impact what, what you're trying to do is help us find a cure. Exactly. And we move the field even faster forward. So. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, that's the whole reason we're, that we're doing this. So we, I, thank you. And I would like to um, open it up for caller questions. So if you have a question about Dr. Shah's research, you can call 347-637-2631. And once you are on the call, you can press 1 on your keypad. Okay, so I would like to open it up to the first caller question. Okay, go ahead. Oh, well, hi, Dr. Shaw and uh, Jenny. Thanks for having me on. Um, by the way, a very uh, articulate uh, uh, conversation so far, and um, it's been uh, a pleasure to listen to the, the, the dialogue. Um, earlier in the, in the interview, um, Dr. Shaw, you talked about a therapy 
that had a complete response, but I didn't get the name of that. What what therapy was that that had a complete response? Uh, it brushed over it quickly, so I, I didn't write it down. So um, that's a great question. Uh, thank you. Um, I think, in fact, when we look at newly diagnosed myeloma, there's many combinations. So I don't want to be um, give the false impression that this one combination of this one drug led to a complete remission while others have not. I, I think what we're trying to say is that there are multiple combinations. If we look in the newly diagnosed setting with RVD leading to complete remissions, um, and we're trying to improve upon the complete remission rate or the chance of getting into a complete remission by adding in panobinostat or other drugs. And so I think uh, when we look in the relapse setting, you know, clearly Velcade um, has led to complete remissions. So has Revlimid. Um, and when we combine the drugs together, we can increase the chance of complete remission. When we look at Velcade plus Panabinostat, there's patients that go into a complete remission with that as well. So I think uh, any one of these combinations, some lower, some higher, but can lead to complete remissions. Uh, the monoclonal antibodies have also led to very nice remissions as well, I think, so that, you know, where we get some very nice deep responses as well. So I don't want to give the impression okay. that one specific more than the other. I think all potentially can, and that's our goal of all of our therapies to improve that chance. Okay, then, then, then maybe that, that's helpful clarification. When, when, I, when, I, when I look at the paper, the numbers on the papers, mm-hmm. and it talks about overall survival and progression-free survival, mm-hmm. um, I guess one, so a complete response doesn't mean the percentage of respondents. It's just somebody's getting a complete response. So what percentage of activity gets you excited as a researcher. Does 75% of patients, patients that have uh, a response rate, is that meaningful? Or what's the percentage? Is it 10% or is it anybody? In terms of what, so, what, what, moves, the, what moves the bar? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and so it can be very difficult. You're right. As you look at these hundreds of abstracts and hundreds of different clinical trials and data, and they present these numbers and say this is exciting data. What really is exciting and what's not exciting? And I think the challenge is um, it, um, there's no one answer for that, and it varies for every disease state and um, patient population that you're looking at. So, for example, in newly diagnosed patients, um, you know, I think with the three drug combinations of carfilzomib, revlimid, and dexamethasone, or revlimid, velcade, and dexamethasone, or any of these kind of three drug combinations, the overall response rate we expect to be very high in that 90% range. And so then we get interested in the complete response rate because now we're trying to push the envelope there, say we don't happy with the 20 or 30% complete response rate. And with carfilzomib Revdex, we're getting 60 and 70% you know, complete response and near complete response rates. And that becomes exciting. Um, and so that becomes a more important kind of endpoint in newly diagnosed patients. When we look in the relapse setting, again, it's very variable. If you look in patients with one to three lines of therapy, and that's the patient population they looked at, I expect a higher response rate. But when I start looking in patients who are refractory to everything, so for example, philanacib, right, with, uh, in that specific trial, uh, those patients were refractory to everything. And in, in that setting, I'm willing to accept a lower benchmark because I know that's a much more difficult disease to treat. And if 20% of patients are responding, that becomes exciting because I know that as I move that forward, 
in one to three lines or newly diagnosed, those response rates will go up just like they did with carfilzomib um, as well. So I think it just depends which patient population you're looking at. And if I'm looking at Velcade refractory patients and I give you Velcade plus panobinostat and 37% of the patients respond or 30% of the patients respond, that becomes exciting. But if I look at just Velcade naive and you've never had Velcade and I give you Velcade plus panobinostat and you only get 30%, well, that's a little bit disconcerting, but that's not the case here okay. because it just depends if you're Velcade sensitive or refractory, what response rate. So I think it becomes tricky to say, here's the benchmark that you need to look at uniformly. I think it depends on which patient setting, which you're refractory to. And so I think that's when we ask these questions at these national meetings saying, how many of your patients were Velcade refractory? How many of your patients were this? And what's the response rate in that subtype to really kind of get a good flavor for how active is this combination? So I know it's not the answer you're looking for, but um, to try and get uh, a little bit more insight helpful. about why it's so complicated. Do you, do you look at biology of the disease in combination with response rates? Or do you just say it's myeloma? Or do you think, you know, if you look at a, an 1114, this, you know, um, genetic mutation and say, it's 70% it's with fat, but, uh, you know, whatever, another one, 14, 12, I don't know if that's his one or not, but another one, well, that one's, you know, 10%. Do you, do you ever look at it horizontally and look at it across the, the, the genetic biology of the disease, or is it just I have myeloma and I get 20% response rate and 30% yeah. here? So we do that with the larger trials, right? So if we look at, um, you know, some of these mutations, only 10, 15, 20, 30% of patients may have a specific mutation. And so, um, you know, if I look at a 60 or 70 patient trial, there may only be five, six, seven patients with a translocation 1114 on there. So it becomes difficult to interpret that data saying, unless 100% of the patients 1114 responded and did fantastically well and it was distinctly different and none of the patients responded with the other things. So you know, unless you have a pretty wide or significant uh, difference, but for the most part, you're going to have smaller numbers of patients in each subset, so it becomes difficult in these smaller trials. I think it becomes helpful when you look at the larger phase three trials with several hundred patients, and then you're going to get a more substantial kind of numbers to look at to make some more conclusions. And again, it's difficult in that setting because these are not designed to look at specifically 1114, so you can only look at that retrospectively and saying yes or a plan, but there are no specific trials if you're looking, what I would think would be the next best step is for patients with specific mutations, this is a trial designed just for you. We have not gotten there just because mm -hmm. of the difficulty with a small number of patients to accrue and uh, try and answer mm -hmm. that question. But you're right, that should be the next step as we move forward is how do we target our therapies for specific mutations? And I think that's, I think, where we need to go next. I, so I've, we've, I've been looking at the new Facebook groups for M patients for the, the different translocations. And so it looks, seems like, so you're, what you're saying is no, nobody's ever done a trial for a, yet, or nobody's designed a trial yet for a specific translocation. So we have. We've looked at, for example, um, uh, FGFR mutations. And so there's a, a drug and a trial that was designed to look at patients with just an FGFR mutation. Uh, unfortunately, I think there's some challenges with that trial in, the, uh, in terms of accruing to it, um, uh, but so that was, I think, uh, discontinued. Uh, so there have been attempts in the past made about that, and I think that 
uh, we'll have to kind of redouble our efforts to look at those types of approaches. Well, I think so it has patients, been tried in the past. Yeah, I think the patients and caregivers would would you know, you know, I think education is going to be an important part. But you know, that's right. If I if I had an FGFR, I would raise my hand and say for sure, you know. But I but yeah. I think the sad reality is most patients don't know what their biology is of the disease, so they're not capable of actually and raising their hand for that trial. Exactly. So if we're able to educate all patients, saying you know when you go into your physician, know what your stage is, what know your cytogenetics are know what the drugs are, know what your M protein is, and know what your options are, and then you can start having much more. But I think that's obviously um, you know, what we'd ideally like our patients to be more educated, more empowered. Very, very well said. Thank, thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Okay, if I make so one much. last quick question before you run out of time, sure. uh, there's also a, an email address that I'll share. It's called myelomatrial at mdanderson.org. Sure. So myeloma trial, M-Y-E-L-O-M-A trial. So if you have any questions about, you know, as you look on clinicaltrials.gov or say, hey, I have X, Y, and Z, and I'm interested in trial X and B, am I inter- and I'd like to come visit, or can you tell me more about it, or am I eligible? You know, I think that's an email that we're happy to share with, and people can access directly, I know, um, to try and facilitate that conversation. Okay, that's great. And we will include that in the transcript so people can have that. Okay, we have one more caller, and I know we're running out of time, but um, it's 557-6827. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Dr. Shaw. Uh, first of all, thanks for sharing your research. And uh, I want to know what the difference is between the clinical trials offered at a bigger facility like MD Anderson compared to a smaller facility or one that does not necessarily, necessarily specialize in myeloma. Uh, so that's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, at the um, end of the day, I think what's important to understand is, um, is this the right clinical trial for you at this time, point in time? And I think those are the three things that I talk about when patients. So to me, it doesn't matter about if I have five trials or 15 trials um, uh, or this center or that center. Um, you know, obviously, here at Anderson, we have a lot of trial options. So when you get down to the bottom line is, is this trial the right trial for me at this time? Because obviously six months from now, this may be a better trial option because this drug doesn't work for me um, or whatever else comes along. So I think that, you know, timing is important as well because uh, – so those, I think, if you answer those three questions, is this the right trial for me in particular given my disease at this point in time um, – then I think, and if that trial is available at you, then that's great. I think, you know, the difference between a small center and a large center doesn't matter so much as long as we may have more of those options and may be able to answer that question yes more frequently. But at the end of the day, if that trial is available to you anywhere, then that's an important option to go forward with. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. That is very well said. Um, Dr. The other Shaw, thing, just we, about that uh-huh, clinical no, trial, even at the smaller centers, you know, at the end of the day, when you're on that trial, there's going to be one research nurse assigned to you as well as the clinical research nurse. And so the type of care that you'll get on that clinical trial, I think, will be unparalleled because you'll have nearly a two dedicated myeloma research nurse who knows about myeloma, the disease process, that trial, and you, and really kind of be a concierge or a steward for you through that experience. And so I think that should be a really uniform experience for patients anywhere participating in a clinical trial is that kind of extra degree of 
um, oversight and attention. So. Well, I think there are advantages that patients maybe have not considered before, but there are distinct advantages of participating in a clinical trial. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Shaw, we have taken a lot of your time. We are so very grateful for having you come on the show and sharing with us your important work. Um, if there's anything we can do to help you in your work, we are happy to do it and would like to continue supporting you and what you're doing. So we wish you the very best and um, hope that we can help you in some way. Thank you, and I think that goes vice versa. Well, anything we can do to help um, the myeloma community and patients in general, um, that's our goal. So. Okay, well, thank you, and best wishes for continued success in all you do. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's show, Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next Inpatient Radio interview as we learn more about how we can help drive to a cure for myeloma. 